Hi, John Gimigliano here, and I'd like to welcome you back to our Catching Up on Capitol Hill podcast series, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. If you've been listening to this series, you know that we've been working hard to look ahead to the future of the tax system and possible changes, especially in light of the November election. You also know that current events sometimes send us off onto brief detours, and well, this week is going to be one of those detours. There was momentous news in the tax world this week when Apple won its state aid case against the European Commission. The state aid issue is one that hung over the head of U.S. companies for several years, and though the issue is not yet completely dead, its threat, I guess, is safe to say is at least diminished for now. Now, to be clear, today we aren't going to talk about that ruling or what it might even mean for multinationals in the long term, at least not directly. Look, this is the Capitol Hill Tax Policy Podcast, and I think it's important to discuss it in that light. Specifically, how did the state aid issue shape the TCJA, and how might this ruling shape future tax legislation? To explore the topic, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Tom Stout, a director on the legislative team here in Washington National Tax, and Jenna Cunha, a principal on the team. More importantly, Jen was the Senate Finance Committee's lead drafter during the development of the TCJA and was on the front lines of the Hills dealing with the state aid issue in the years running up to the TCJA. So let's start there with you, Jen. This is obviously an issue you spent a lot of time thinking about during your time on the Hill. Can you just talk a little bit, little bit about how the state aid issue influenced the development of the TCJA? So, you know, it's funny because, you know, some people think that a lot of the international provisions in particular were just kind of thrown together at the last minute. And what's interesting is that, you know, for a long time, from back when the first discussions and rumblings that the state aid stuff was kind of um, coming together, you know, on the Hill, this was getting a whole lot of attention, right? We had big tech firms, big U.S. multinationals that were being targeted by these. So at the beginning, a lot of the push was, hey, this is back in, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, please help us. We need to reform our international system because this is becoming a money grab for other countries. And Congress was listening. You know, there were a series of hearings back at the House Ways and Means Committee in 2015 in particular, talking about, you know, how the state aid um, cases are really impacting and putting pressure on the U.S. system, right? Because this was all income that was viewed as stateless income. And the push was, let's give it a state. That appropriate state would be the United States. So with that as a running theme, I mean, that carried through all the way to tax reform, right? That hearing was in the fall of 2015. And that was just kind of a recurring theme. I think it also helped build like a coalition of support to transition from a worldwide system of taxation to a territorial system because there was that desire to have that as an insurance policy, for lack of a better term, for the U.S. system. Right. And, you know, we often heard people talk about those unrepatriated foreign earnings as, uh, I think, an attractive nuisance, right, sitting out right. there previously untaxed and a great temptation for, right, other jurisdictions to try and get their hands on and which is in part what state aid was about. And I guess what you're saying then, Jen, is in one way, uh, maybe it seems a little funny to say this, but the, the state aid cases, which seem many taxpayers viewed as anti-U.S., right. were part of the fuel of the fire in the fire to ultimately drive the TC, you know, enactment of the TCJA. Is that fair to say? No, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we, what we're seeing was, you know, that there was a lot of 
stateless income, income that was dubbed stateless income, that was fueling the state aid process. And, you know, that really helped in tax reform. It contributed to the reform of the international tax system, right? Because part of that reform included the deemed repatriation, which was taxing all of those deferred foreign earnings. And, and that was a really compelling argument, right? It, was, it wasn't, hey, you know, this is going to be a tax that no one wants to pay. There was a real push, please, let's, just, let's tax those earnings at a lower rate, at a competitive rate, so that we can, you know, justifiably say, no, the U.S. has taxed these earnings. These aren't, this is not stateless income. This is U.S. income that was already subject to tax in the United States. And that really helped. I mean, you know, the deem repatriation, it raised a lot, hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue that helped lower that corporate rate and helped TCJA pass. I mean, it helped it cross that finish line. So it really fueled it. So with that, Tom, let me come to you then. You know, I think we've just made the case that, at least in part, the developments on state aid helped drive the negotiation, the drafting of, and the enactment of the TCJA. Let's just play, you know, hypothetical here for a moment. If this ruling had come before enactment of the TCJA, in other words, we'd had this, you know, not the, the European Union knocking down uh, the, the state aid cases before the TCJA had gotten across the finish line, would the TCJA have happened at all? Question one, and if it had, might it have been different? So, Tom, what do you think? Well, I think there was a, there was a push to do something about deferred foreign earnings, you know, even before the, the state aid cases came up. I mean, one of the, one of the big drivers for, for, for international tax reform generally were the stories that were coming out about big U.S. corporations who were paying extremely low rates of tax because they had significant offshore income that, that was either not subject to tax or subject to tax at a very low rate. That's a fair point, right? So much of this was in play before the state aid cases came about. So it's not like state aid created the issue. But Jen, let me come back to you then for, let me play contrarian here. It seems like, from the outside, it seemed like the repatriation revenue was, you know, part of the, 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 the grease the gears of tax reform. And we saw that rate go up and up and up as tax reform kept getting negotiated. Every time we need a little bit more money, we could go there. Would companies have been as willing to go along with these higher repatriation rates had they not had the specter of state aid out there? Well, you know, that's funny. Once you get sign-off on a revenue raiser, the toggling of the rate up and up and up, that really wasn't done in consultation with the business community, I'm afraid to say. That was done, you know, a couple of hours before a vote in order to make the budget work. And, you know, the rates did go up. But another thing that I just considered was, you know, a lot of the support for the guilty was also driven by some of the state aid, right? Because when originally in 2011, when then Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee Camp released a territorial system with a minimum tax, there was a huge blowback. But, you know, there was a desire to kind of broaden the U.S. base as broad as possible in order to serve as, you know, a safeguard for U.S. companies to say, no, this has already been subject to tax. This was subject to the guilty. Whether or not it was exactly what people desired, it really kind of whet the appetite for a, a position like that in the United States, where as before, it was originally met with extreme hostility. Well, this sort of alternate history of the tax code stuff is fun to play out, at least for us, you know, this is what we do. But maybe we should flip it to something a little more tangible or real, real for our listeners. So let's 
put away what may or may not have happened uh, in the past with the TCJA, and let's just ask ourselves what might happen in the future as it relates to the ruling that we just had, right? Because there's no putting the toothpaste back in the TCJA tube. You know, as I, I've been saying, we are going to turn to the Biden tax plan in the next couple of episodes, including the next episode. So hope you listen to that. But let's just work through that here in this context for a second, assuming a Biden presidency, right? And let's just also assume here that um, the Democrats control the House and the Senate as well. So we've got a unified Democratic control, thereby paving the way to more easily enacting tax law changes. Do you think the state aid ruling complicates the ability to do material modifications to the U.S. system, especially the international system? Or is it maybe another way, does it make it easier for him to do that? What do you think? You know, that's an interesting question because we know that state aid kind of helped fuel some of the appetite for international reform, at least among some companies. Now, will the resolution of the case, at least the biggest case that was on the roster, really make a difference? And that's, it's, it's hard to tell, right? Because, you know, the one thing that did the takeaway from the state aid case was that, you know, a deal isn't always a deal, right? I mean, there was just this general perception that, you know, in, in confidence in the political stability of tax law, um, especially in the EU. And, you know, that's it's kind of thrown an additional political risk into the mix when we're talking about tax and international tax in particular, especially for U.S. multinationals, right, because the state aid case is largely focused, you know, a lightning focus on U.S. companies in particular. So there is a perception that the danger is always kind of looming, right? If it happened once, you know, it could happen again, notwithstanding this recent precedent. And it wasn't without cost. These take years to resolve. I mean, back in 2015, there was a congressional hearing about state aid, right? And, you know, we're talking about years and years later. There's, it's just now resolved. I mean, it costs a lot of money. So, you know, will it help move uh, new international tax changes? Definitely not. Right. Because there is, you know, now with the new international system, it's going to be hard to make changes. Incremental changes, I think, are more possible. But going back to the old system is definitely off the table. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of hesitation in order to strike a new deal with respect to international, especially when you have this kind of this possibility out there, this political risk in tax planning abroad, especially for U.S. companies come back to that then. So all, I, all that you said makes perfect sense. But I think it, it, sort of implicit in those answers about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 and how it affects is that's kind of assuming Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 exist, right? And there is this alternate possibility that the whole project kind of, you know, fails. They fail to yep. get consensus on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, right? And what do we end up with? We end up with a bunch of unilateral DSTs. If that's our scenario, I mean, that seems like a really, you know, complicated scenario for Biden to wade through. And then you layer on top of that, if state aid was in part what forced U.S. companies or multinationals generally to the bargaining table to deal in the TCJA, without that hanging over their heads, are they really going to feel as compelled to get come to the table to bargain? I don't know. Jen, what do you think? Pretty scary, right, for a lot of U.S. companies. It's really scary to think of the world where you have just like a bunch of, it's like, you know, uh, to eat to zone, eat what you kill, DSTs you know, a plenty. I mean, I think it will put a lot of pressure on a Biden administration to do something about it. What that would be, we don't know. Definitely see a scenario where the OECD doesn't have consensus with respect to Pillar 1 or Pillar 2. But I don't see a scenario where the U.S. isn't forced to respond in some fashion 
to a, you know, kind of like a free-for-all with DSTs. I think something will have to be done, whether it's through the OECD or whether the U.S. is going to have to go in and, you know, and make modifications to its rules. I don't know. But, you know, international tax, I've got to say, not popular on the Hill. It's not something that's top of mind in members in, in districts or in, you know, in member offices. International tax is something that's really hard to do generally, even when the conditions are really good. I can't imagine, you know, having to face that, you know, during an economic slump and facing a, a bunch of, you know, DSTs and retaliatory activity. Gary. It is. And, you know, for, if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you, know, we talked a little bit about, we got into the OECD project. And if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to the episode that we did on the Mnuchin letter related to the OECD project, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. I think an underappreciated angle on this, and that's what's Capitol Hill's role in anything on the OECD. Well, look, that's all we have time for today. But this was such a blockbuster development in the world of international taxation. I thought it was important that we talk about it. We obviously don't have all or maybe even any of the answers on where this is headed. But the one thing we know is we're going to see this play out in the coming months and almost certainly years. And we were able to give you just a tease today on looking forward to the Biden tax plan. We will really begin to turn to that in earnest in the next few episodes. So do not miss those. And thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.